When Moshe Rabbeinu was 20 years of age, he went out to see the matzah of the situation of his brothers in Mitzrayim, and he saw tremendous oppression, tremendous affliction. And being the pure-hearted leader, and being the manig, he felt their pain, he did whatever he could to help them, and in one such expedition, he walks out and sees the most egregious act. He sees a Mitzri man attempting to murder an innocent Jew. Moshe Rabbeinu was pure, was holy. He used the Shem HaMafurash, and he killed this Mitzri man. That fact was brought to Paro, that Moshe, who was then the heir apparent, had murdered an Egyptian man to defend a Jew, and it was considered a tremendous affront to the monarchy. Paro judged him to Misa, he was to be executed, and Moshe Rabbeinu ran away. He ran to Midian, and he found himself at the well. At that well, he saw something very interesting. The seven daughters of Yisro were being drowned. Yisro had been a comer, he had been one of the heads of the Avodah League over there. He had been an extremely respected person in Midian, but he had given it up. And in retribution for his giving up the idol worship ways, the people there turned against him. And when no one would work for him, he had his own daughters bring out his sheep because no one else would work for him. And when his daughters brought out the sheep to drink, the shepherds gathered as a group and took them and threw them into the well. When Moshe appears on the scene, he sees these girls in the well, sees these shepherds attempting to drown him. He quickly chases the shepherds away, pulls each of the young women out of the well, and at which point they go back to their father. When they go back to their father, they're there very early, because normally they would have to wait till the very end, till after everyone gave their sheep to drink. Here they came very early because after Moshe saved them, he also gave their sheep to drink and etc. They came back early and Yisro said, what are you doing here early? Says the daughters to Yisro, Ish Mitzri Hitzilanum Yad Haroim. An Egyptian man saved us from the shepherds and he also gave our sheep to drink and that's why we're here early. The Medjushan Tanchuma asked the following question. Why did they call that man who saved them an Ish Mitzri, an Egyptian man? In those days, the skin of the Egyptians were clearly different than other people, darker and much more deep olive complexion, and it was obvious to anyone that Moshe was not a Mitzri. Moshe was unique in stature, and Moshe was incredibly handsome, and he did not look in any sense like an Egyptian man. Why then did these girls say to their father, the Egyptian man saved us? Explains the Medrash that actually what happened was a conversation between these young women and Moshe. When Moshe saved them, they said, Yashakoch, thank you for saving us. Says Moshe back to these young women, don't thank me, thank the Egyptian man. Because that Egyptian man was beating the Jew, I killed that man. Because that Aparo wanted to execute me, because that I ran to Midian, I was only here because that Egyptian man, don't thank me. Thank the Egyptian man. And in fact, then the Medrash Tanchuma gives us a mushal. Let me give you a parable to what this is like. Imagine a man who is walking and he gets bit by a snake. He quickly runs to the river to wash his foot. In the river, as soon as he gets there to put his foot in, he sees a young lad drowning. He reaches in and saves the boy. 
when the boy is saved, he says to the man, thank you, thank you for saving me. Says the man to the boy, don't thank me, thank the snake. Had it not been for the snake, I would not have been here. Says the Medrash, that's exactly what Moshe said to these young women. Don't thank me, thank the Mitzri man. It's because of him that I'm here. That's why the girls said to their father, Ish Mitzri, a Mitzri man saved us, because they were telling over the lesson that Moshe had said to them. And that's a Medrash. And if you think about this Medrash, it's rather perplexing. In yeshivish expressions, there are some that are unique. The expression that you're saying good or you're not saying good is probably one of the most familiar. When someone says a logic, when someone says a sora, you're saying good, you say better, you're, saying, you're not saying good. It's a very pithy way of saying whether the logic is appropriate and proper or whether it's convoluted. Let's play the test to whether you're saying good or not to each of the arguments and we'll see something rather difficult to understand. These girls are in the well, they're drowning. <clears throat> Along comes this man and saves them. Says these young women to that man, thank you. Says Moshe back to them, don't thank me, thank the Egyptian man. Now who's saying good and who's saying not good? It's obvious that the girls are saying good, meaning that man saved us. Thank you, sir. Says Moshe back to them, don't thank me, thank the Mitzri. That's not good. That's convoluted logic. What do we thank the Mitzri? The Mitzri didn't know about these girls. The Mitzri didn't intend for their salvation. You saved them. They thank you. They're saying appropriately. Their logic is correct. And Moshe Rabbeinu's logic is convoluted. He's saying, don't thank me, thank the Mitzri. It sounds very, very difficult to understand. If you're going to thank the Mitzri, I don't know, maybe you should thank the Mitzri's mother for having him. Thank the Mitzri's grandmother. Thank. How do you? Ain't love self, but more than that, it's not correct. Moshe saved him. He's the one who should get thanks. And what makes this problem even more difficult is the fact that the Medrash then uses a mushal. When Chazal uses a mushal, it's to bring us into a different frame of reference. The answer isn't clear. You don't quite get it. Let me give you a parable to bring you into a different perspective so that you can understand a difficult answer. The mushal darkens the picture. Says the mushal, a man was bitten, he runs to the river, in the river he sees a boy, he pulls the boy out, and the boy says, thank you to the man. The man says, don't thank me, thank the snake. That mushal doesn't help, that mushal is equally perplexing. The boy said correctly, the boy said, thank you, sir, you saved me. Says the man back to the boy, don't thank me, thank the snake. Why should he thank the snake? The snake is unaware of the boy. The snake didn't intend to save the boy. There's no reason whatsoever that the boy should thank the snake. This medrash is a plea, is incredibly difficult to understand, and the muscle that the medrash uses is far worse. And I'd like to see if we can understand this medrash and understand what, in fact, Moshe Rabbeinu was telling the Benos Yisro, the daughters of Yisro. And to do that, let's focus on some of the most famous words that were uttered in probably the past 100 years. In July 1969, when Neil Armstrong landed on the moon, he took one step forward and he said the immortal words, a small step for a man, a giant leap for mankind. And those words were echoed almost 500 million people heard it live on TV, which was then new, 
And for decades afterwards, those words were repeated and said over because it was a change in the course of history. To land a man on the moon, for a man to walk on the moon and come back alive was something that was astonishing. Now let's imagine that we were at a luncheon a few months after the Apollo <coughs> spaceship came back, and it was a luncheon honoring Neil Armstrong. And the MC gets up to say, ladies and gentlemen, do you understand that this man changed the world? For hundreds of years, man dreamt about flying. And for decades, man looked at the moon and said, is it possible? This man changed history. This man alone did what no one else could do. This man went to the moon, walked on it and came back. What society owes to this man is incomparable. Neil Armstrong is the man of the century. I would imagine that if Neil Armstrong then took the podium, he would have some explaining to do as in, listen, you know, I had some help there. I appreciate the accolades, I appreciate the uh, the compliments, but you know, I did have a crew with me. Uh, and the truth is, I don't really know that much about creating metal. I don't, don't know that much about uh, rocket fuel. To be honest with you, I don't know that much about uh, creating three-stage rockets. And not only that, Neil Armstrong was really a very, very small, teeny cog in a huge wheel. It took 500 years of scientific development and advancement to begin mastering the laws of physics, to begin applying the technological advances. It took centuries of entire armies of men dedicated to bring science to a point where they could begin contemplating sending a man to the moon. But it was a particular set of circumstances that arranged it because the USA and the USSR were engaged in a Cold War. Since the end of World War II, there was an, a war that was not fought with bullets, but fought with advancements. It was an ideological war between capitalism and communism. And in the early 1960s, President Kennedy said the words, by the end of this decade, we will land a man on the moon. He was giving a challenge to capitalism, a challenge to democracy, challenging the USSR. And it took an entire society's resources. It took one of then the most powerful nation in the world to dedicate all of its energy, <clears throat> all of its advanced science to this process. And it took leagues and leagues of men, decades, to then put that together. And in 1969, at the end of that decade... And they actually put this rocket. He was chosen to be the man to captain the mission. And he, in fact, was the man who landed first and walked on the moon. So is it true that he walked on the moon first? Yes. Is it true that he said the words? Yes. But how much credit is given to him? So in reality, there are two ways to look at it. On the one sense, for history, he's remembered as a man who conquered space. But in reality, he did very, very little. He happened to have been the right man in the right place at the right time. But what he really contributed was a tiny little speck, not even 2%, but 0.00002%. It took an entire cadre of people. He happened to have been the man on the scene. Had it not been him, it could have been dozens of other people. <clears throat> but more than that, it's not really attributed to him. And yet it is. And I think this is a very important muscle. Because in reality, when a human being accomplishes anything in this world, we are credited for it. 
for the good or for the bad. And yet we recognize that Hashem is intimately involved in everything. Hashem created the world. Hashem maintains physicality. Hashem orchestrates events. Yet if I do something good or I do something bad, it's totally attributed to me. If I murder a human being, I'm considered his murderer. If I save a human being, I'm considered the person who saved him. Even though everything is me'es Hashem, even though everything is Hashem's involvement, even though Hashem does more than 98%, 99.999%, the little bit that the human being does, the human being is credited with. Why? Because Hashem wants there to be reward and punishment. And therefore, even though the human being did very little, he's credited with doing the whole. How much did the human being really do? Very little. But he's credited with the whole as if he did everything. As Neil Armstrong is credited as the man who conquered space, when a human being does an action for the good or for the bad, it's attributed to him. But unfortunately, we often mistake this. And oftentimes, we not only attribute so little to Hashem, we seem to view things completely, totally from this world. And what we see is a world that runs in the ways of nature. And we give so much credit to man that we forget reality. And because of that, we get very flustered, we get intimidated, we take situations way too seriously. And I'd like to give you a muscle to the way I think we normally misunderstand situations. Imagine that there's a very wealthy philanthropist, a very good fellow, very dedicated to helping, and he opens an orphanage. But this orphanage is unique. He takes really hardcore cases, kids who have no one in the world for them, and he brings them in, and he feeds them and clothes them and gives them the best education, anything that's possible to help them out, he helps them out. And he succeeds for quite a number of years. He brings in kids from the worst of the worst, brings them in, brings them up. Many of them he succeeds in really giving them a good footing in life, some not as much. There's some people who really don't have the capacity, one fellow Joe, who really just doesn't have the intelligence. He gives them a job being the uh, the food server. Another fellow, Frank, who would have loved to have done something in business but really doesn't have the capacity, he makes him the cook. Another fellow who would really want to do things but just doesn't have the intelligence, he makes him the person who purchases the food. And this orphanage continues for a number of decades. One day, a 15-year-old boy is brought into the orphanage, and this kid has had it rough. For the past two years, he's been eating out of garbage cans. He's emaciated. He's hungry, and he eats his first square meal, and he goes to sleep in a real bed, and he gets real clothing, and he spends a few months in the orphanage. He begins putting on weight. He begins getting color back to his skin. And one day as he brings his plate to Joe, the food server, and Joe scoops a big portion of stew and puts it on his plate, this fellow looks at Joe and says, Joe, you saved my life. Joe, I was eating out of garbage cans for two years, and now you've given me food, and look how much weight I put on. Joe, what could I ever do to thank you? Now, Joe's a simple fellow, but he's not foolish. He says, don't thank me. I just serve the food. Thank, Thank Frank. Frank cooks it. So this fellow walks in and says to Frank, Frank, thank you so much. I was hungry, emaciated, and you cooked food for me. The cook says, what are you thanking me? Thank the guy who buys the food. So the fellow goes in to the fellow who buys the food. Thank you so much. And the fellow who buys the food says, what are you thanking me? Thank the fellow who writes the checks. And each of them are making a foolish mistake. 
because the one who gets credit for that is the philanthropist who created the orphanage, who runs the orphanage, who makes sure that each person is doing his job. And if the fellow has to thank anyone, it's not the person who serves the food, not the fellow who cooks the food, but the person who arranges it all. And unfortunately, we often make this mistake. We, like that innocent enough naive fellow, thank the food server, thank the person who cooks it, thank the person who buys it, and we miss the big picture. There's a creator of the world who runs the world, who's intimately involved in every activity on the sun. And that creator of the world who runs everything that happens makes sure that what's supposed to happen happens in the right time. So does that mean the human being has no free will? Human beings have a lot of free will. Does that mean human beings don't get credit for what they do? They do. But we have to also recognize that a human being has very little control, and he certainly can't control another human being's destiny. <clears throat> if you do me a great service, I have to thank you. I have to appreciate it. And I have to recognize that you are but a tiny, tiny cog in the wheel. If this wasn't coming to me, you couldn't have given it to me. If it was coming to me anyway, you could not have stopped it. I have to thank you because we act in the ways of the world, and that's a normal derech teva. And I have to recognize that you are but the food server, but a tiny little cog. There's a creator of the world who runs the world, who orchestrates every activity. And I believe that's what Moshe Rabbeinu was saying to the daughters of Yisrael. You're thanking me? You're thanking me? Go, go thank the mitzri. You're missing the picture. If you're thanking me, you're looking at this world as if it runs according to the ways of the world, as if I saved you. <clears throat> had it not been me, it would someone else. <clears throat> had it not been someone else, Hashem would have sent many, many different messengers. If you're going to go thank me, go thank the mystery, because you're looking at this world as a chain of events that happen in the derech teva, in the way of the world, and you're missing the big picture. There's a creator, <clears throat> maintainer, and orchestrator of everything that happens, and he's the one that you have to thank. And I think that this Chazal is incredibly eye-opening and incredibly important because it teaches us a number of very important principles. The first principle to recognize is that while I do very little, I am credited 100%. My good, my bad, whatever choices I make, if a result comes about, I have to understand that I'm fully, absolutely credited for the good or for the bad. If I save a human being, if I hurt a human being, if I say kindly words, if I say negative words, if a fellow was doing very well and I put him into a tailspin, that's credited to me. If a person was having a rough time and I ate it and helped him, and as a result his life changed, that changed life is credited to me. Had I not been there, it would have happened anyway. Had I not been the one, Hashem would have arranged it. But it's credited to me, and we human beings are given full credit for the good and for the bad. And at the same time that that's absolutely true, that's a chesed that Hashem does because Hashem wants it to be reward and punishment. <clears throat> and we have to recognize that Hashem is absolutely, totally, completely involved in the runnings of the world. Had I not done it, <clears throat> it would have happened anyway. But more than that, I am but a tiny, tiny, little piece of a huge picture. When Neil Armstrong landed on the moon, it took hundreds of years of thousands of people, an entire society dedicated towards bringing that into fruition. He did a little piece, and I have to understand that any involvement I have in this world, I have a little piece, but Hashem is there totally, completely in everything that happens. 
And with this perspective, I think the way that we approach life in general changes dramatically. You ever find yourself cut off in traffic and you go, oh, I can't believe it. The guy cut me off. It wasn't bad enough. I'm sitting in traffic. The guy cut me off and now I'm, I am furious at that guy. Why do I get angry when I get stuck in traffic? Why do I get angry when you do something to me? I get angry because you affected me. I had a great client and you stole that client from me. I am furious. How could you damage me that way? And the reason I get angry and the reason I get upset is because I attribute to you tremendous powers that you don't have. I assume that you control my destiny. I assume that red lights, late meetings, and things said or not said appropriately are what make my parnosa come to me, my sustenance come to me, or not. And because of that, we take this world very, very seriously. And because of that, we get upset, we get angry, we get disappointed over things that have no control whatsoever. I have to go out there and earn a living, and I have to work very, very diligently and be very focused because that's my ishtadlis, that's what Hashem wants me to do, to use this world in the ways of the world. And I have to recognize that it doesn't make a difference. I have to recognize that Hashem determines exactly what's going to be. And throughout the gamut of human activities, everything that I'm involved in, every issue that I'm involved in, I have to use the world in the ways of the world, and I have to recognize that it doesn't change the outcome. And when I have that attitude, the way I approach all situations changes dramatically. I recognize immediately that you and the rest of the world can't help me, can't harm me. You are but minuscule, teeny little pieces. If not you, someone else, not someone else, someone else. Hashem is totally, completely involved, and all credit goes to Hashem. Again, if you help me, it's derecheret, it's proper, it's appropriate for me to thank you. If you did me a disservice, it's probably appropriate for me to feel you shouldn't have done that. But the anger, the afvachema, doesn't apply because you are powerless to change the outcome. And recognizing that anything that any human being does on the planet is but a teeny little tiny, tiny percentage of what happens changes everything that we do. And I think if we took nothing else from this Chazal other than that concept alone, it would be very worthwhile focusing on it. But I think there's a lot more to learn. And that's because we only answered one question. You see, there are two questions on this Chazal. The first question is that when the daughters of Yisro said thank you, and Moshe said don't thank the Mitzri, the daughters of of Yisro were saying correctly, and Moshe was not saying right. The answer to that question is no. <clears throat> Moshe Rabbeinu was saying a very intelligent, very deep concept. He was saying to them, don't thank me, <clears throat> there's a much bigger picture. If you're thanking me, you're getting too caught in the trees. You're missing the forest. You're not recognizing that Hashem is involved in running the world. Thank me, thank the mystery, meaning to say, there's a much bigger picture. That question we answered. But there was another question that we didn't answer. Why did the Medrash feel <clears throat> that we needed a mushal? I get it. It's a simple point. <clears throat> Don't thank a human being because a human being is only but a small cog, a very small little piece. Thank Hashem. That's simple enough. What do we need the marshals? You see, imagine a man, he gets bit, he runs to the <clears throat> river, he sees a boy there, he pulls the boy out, saves his life. The boy says, thank you, sir. Says the man to the boy, Don't thank me, thank the snake. Number one, we don't need the marshal. Number two, the marshal doesn't help. It doesn't clarify anything. It doesn't make things more clear. 
So the question is, what did Chazal mean when they added this Medrash? And I think this part <clears throat> requires a little bit more understanding. When I was a little guy, <clears throat> I was in camp, and the, was, there was a production, a play. And the play then was Peter Pan. Now, <clears throat> I want to explain to you that uh, eight, nine-year-old boys are not skilled yet in flying, so obviously there was a little bit of a problem casting for that part because Peter Pan has to fly onto the stage, fly off of the stage. That's part of what Peter Pan does. It happens to be that the <clears throat> director took his <clears throat> job very seriously and he rented a harness. And on this little boy who became Peter Pan, he put the harness on, put the shirt <clears throat> of the boy over the harness, and on the back of the harness was a hook. And in fact, this little boy was <clears throat> hooked to a cable that went up into the rafters. And when the curtain opened, Peter Pan came flying down. <clears throat> and at the right time, Peter Pan came flying up because the pulleys and gears were pulling him up and down. Okay. Now imagine that you're at a Broadway production, but a very major Broadway production, and there are hundreds of actors on stage, and all of them are flying up and back and forth, but it's dark. And because it's dark, it looks real. Oh my goodness, there are fairies that are flying, and Peter Pan is jumping up and down, and he's flying in the air. But you have to go out for a minute, and as you pass the stage and get close, you see all the wires. You see, each actor has a harness, and there are wires and pulleys, and it's a whole cable system. I believe that that's a very apt muscle for Ashgacha. When you're in the world, and people suddenly appear, someone happens to say something at this point. You happen to end up here, and someone just remembers and says something, or someone introduces someone. What you're doing is you're watching Peter Pan. You see, Hashem arranges this world and runs the world in a very complex manner. And when people suddenly appear in your world, people suddenly who shouldn't have been there are there, or people say things that they shouldn't see or have said, what you're doing is you're watching Hashem orchestrating the world. Like Peter Pan on that harness being put into place, and you're watching Hashem pulling the strings, pulling the wires from behind. And I believe that's actually what Moshe Rabbeinu was saying to the daughters of Yisrael. Are you thanking me? Did you ever wonder what in the world am I doing here in Midian? Is this the place of my birth? <clears throat> Is this the place where I live? Don't you see I look very different than any other person here? But more than that, just so happens that when you're drowning, I show up. Moshe Rabin was a giant of a man. A normal man could not chase away a group of shepherds. It happens to be that I, this giant of man, show up just at the moment, chase away these shepherds who are attacking you, save you, and you're thanking me? Are you paying attention to the plot? Are you understanding what's going on? If you thank me, go thank the mystery, meaning to say, don't you recognize what's happening here? This is Peter Pan. I was put into this place. There's a harness. There are wires. I was put into this place. Wake up and understand what's really happening here. And I believe what Chazal are adding with that mushal is a much more important perspective. And that is for us to wake up and smell the coffee. When we see Hashkacha, what we're seeing is miracles. People who suddenly appear who shouldn't have been there. People who say things that they shouldn't say. We're supposed to see the harness see the wires behind, seeing Hashem up there putting this person into place, and we're supposed to say, I get it. But it's not that easy. The daughters of Yisro didn't get it. It took Moshe Rabbeinu's showing it to them. And ultimately, that is one of the great secrets for success in life. And I had a chance to see this in action 
on a personal level, and I'd like to share it with you. Recently, there was a wedding that I wasn't supposed to be at. It was a family wedding, and for various reasons, I wasn't supposed to be there. But as it turned out, I had to be there. My father asked me to be there, so I made up, okay, I'm going. On the way to that wedding, my wife asked me a question about a shidduch that she was involved in. This couple were pretty close to getting uh, engaged, but there was a certain issue, and they had gone to a rov in Brooklyn to ask the question, and the rov said such and such, and the woman, the young woman was satisfied, but the fellow wasn't. And it was still being held in abeyance, the shidduch wasn't going forward. My wife asked me, what should she do? I said, listen, you know, what should happen is the rov should say to the fellow X, Y, and Z, um, my wife said, so can you speak to him? I said, how could I? I don't know the man. I can't call him up on the phone and, and tell him it wasn't my place. But that's, I think, <clears throat> if the, if the Rav would say to the young man, such and such, I think it would change the situation. Okay, anyway, I get to the wedding. <clears throat> and when I come in, someone comes to talk to me. And he asks me a question, and we discuss things at length, and he needs something. So back and forth, bottom line is, I was involved in that conversation for quite a while after the chuppah. And it ended up that I walked into the uh, to the actual dining room when everyone had long been seating already, sitting in their seats. I get to my table, and there's only one seat left. The entire table is filled. All the seats are taken. There's only one seat left. So <clears throat> because I'm late, I have no choice, so I sit down in that seat. I'm a friendly enough fellow. <clears throat> After a moment, I look to the fellow to write to me and say, Shalom Aleichem, my name is Ben Sian Schaefer. How are you? And he looks at me, and he doesn't say anything. And then the person to his right, a little bit older gentleman, looks at me and also doesn't say anything immediately. But then he says something like, I think you uh, know my Talmud. Who's your Talmud? And he says the name of the Talmud and my jaw dropped. Why? Because it happens to be that my daughter was going out with that young man. They're very seriously involved and there was a certain <clears throat> shyla that my daughter had about this fellow. She very much liked him. <clears throat> he liked her. It looked like it was a very good potential shidduch. But there was a certain issue that she was concerned about. And this <clears throat> Rosh Shiva says, well, I'm his Rebbe. And he begins talking to me about this fellow. And he begins going on and on and on about that exact issue. Exactly her concern. He explains to me how it's not a concern at all. <clears throat> he explains to me how that quite the opposite on and on and on. I said to him, I wish I could find people to speak that way about me. After a moment or two, <clears throat> that person, the Shiva, got up and said, I hope you excuse me, I have to leave, and he stepped away. Okay. So <clears throat> I'm sitting there. <clears throat> now the fellow on the right also walked away. <clears throat> I'm sitting there at the table. After a moment or two, I looked at a f- person to my left, or trying to be a friendly fellow. I say, hi, Shalom Lecha. My name is Vincent Schaefer. He says, <clears throat> oh, my name is so-and-so. I say, so-and-so, were you ever a Rebbe in such-and-such shul? No. I'm a Rav in such-and-such shul in Brooklyn. I said, you are? He said, yeah. I said, did you have a fellow and a young woman come to you with this and this question? He said, yes. And did you say to them X and Y and Z? And it turns out that that was the Rav in question that my wife talked to me about. And I said to him, we're talking about the Shidduch, I said, do you think it might be an idea to do this? He said, yeah. Do you think if I told the young man that you'd be fine with it, would you agree? He said, absolutely. And all of a sudden, that problem evaporated. I get up to dance, and it happens to be that right after the dancing, the fellow sitting immediately to my right, who I didn't recognize at all, comes over to me and says, you know, 
that young fellow that the <clears throat> Rashiv was talking about happens to be, he's a little bit younger than me, but he's my Chavrusa, <clears throat> and I'd like to tell you about him. And he also goes on to tell me a little bit more about the <clears throat> back and forth of this fellow. Okay, so this is starting to get a little interesting, <clears throat> but anyway, the wedding's over, or <clears throat> not over, but my wife and I leave, <clears throat> and we're driving home, and all of a sudden my wife says, oh my goodness, we're out of gas. And we're in the lower part of Manhattan, and there are no gas stations, and I see she's right. <clears throat> we're not in an empty, we're below empty. And I say to myself, oh my goodness, I'm such a nar. <clears throat> Yesterday, I was at a gas station, I said, should I fill up, should I not fill up? I have a wedding tour, nah, I have enough. I should have filled up, I would have saved myself a half hour, there's no way <clears throat> we're going to find a gas station here, and we could even run out of gas. Anyway, it's the bottom of Manhattan, <clears throat> we stop, <clears throat> ask somebody, where's a gas station? Luckily enough, we found someone, it cost us at least a half hour of time to get off the highway, go to that gas station, get gas, get back on the highway. Okay, we get back on the highway, we're driving, we pull up <clears throat> to my house, and in the driveway is a car. Hmm. My wife and I park on the street, <clears throat> we get out, and it happens to be who's in the car but my daughter and this young man. But let's freeze the action right now. Because before my wife and I pulled up, before we parked, there was a conversation in the car. We weren't unaware of it, but there was a conversation between my daughter and this young man. Again, they were going out, and it's quite serious. <clears throat> and my daughter had a concern that she wanted to share <clears throat> with this young man. But it was a sensitive issue, not really a deal breaker, but definitely said the wrong way could be. And she wanted to be very upfront, <clears throat> and she wanted to explain it to him, but she didn't know quite how to say it. So she began, <clears throat> you know, I, I've been meaning to speak to you about uh, something, and um, I was a little uncomfortable, <clears throat> and, um, and all of a sudden she stops. She gets all emotional, gets choked up, and she can't speak anymore. And it's frozen in time. She waited in that moment, he in his seat, her in her seat, for almost 60 seconds, when suddenly her mother and her father appear right in front of the car. And she looks to this fellow and says, you know what, let me have my parents explain it to you. <clears throat> they roll down the window, <clears throat> she asks us, can we come into the car? We step into the car, she asks, can I explain it to him? I explain to the young man exactly what the situation was, and everything is fine and well. Now, let's put together the math. Come on. What are the odds that I sit down at a table next to this fellow's Rosh Hashiva? But not only that, I couldn't sit down next to him. There were plenty of other people I knew at the table. I would have sat there. I wasn't supposed to be at the wedding. But someone stops me in the hall beforehand. And it happens to be that when I sit down, this fellow's older Chavrusa is right to my right. His Rosh is to the left. And as soon as that little party is finished and they leave, to my other side is the Rav who is speaking to my wife about who she wanted me to speak to. And then when we're done, we run out of gas so that we're right on the scene at the moment when my daughter's stuck and we say the exact right words. This is called Peter Pan. Hashem putting people into position, moving them, flying them in all of a sudden. And when you begin opening your eyes and you see this daily on an ongoing basis and you recognize, I get it, Hashem, you're in charge. But these aren't miracles that happened to Tzaddikim of yesteryear. <clears throat> these are not events that happened to Moshe Rabbeinu. The words we say in Modim three times a day, Modim Manach Nulach Hashem, we acknowledge, we thank you for what? 
for the miracles that are daily amongst us. Forget the fact that you created the world. Forget the fact that you maintain physicality. Hashem, you orchestrate this world. You're intimately involved in every human being's life, especially a Jew. And understanding that what I'm watching is Peter Pan being flown in all day long. This one and that one and that one and this one. And he said this and she said that. And this happened to him in here. I have to see the wires. I have to see the harness. I have to look behind the scenes and see Hashem orchestrating, putting them into place. And I believe that's what Moshe Rabbeinu was saying to the daughters of, of Yisro. You're not understanding what's clear and what's obvious. You're thanking me. On one level, what Moshe Rabbeinu was saying was very simple. <clears throat> Neil Armstrong walked on the moon. Neil Armstrong was a tiny, small percentage. <clears throat> There's a creator of the world who orchestrated everything that's happening there. And oftentimes we take this world so seriously, like that naive fellow <clears throat> in the orphanage who saved and he thinks, Joe, you served me the food, thank you. He's missing the big picture. And on one level, what Moshe Rabbeinu was saying to the daughters of Yisrael was understand that no human being can help you, no human being can harm you. I'm but a small, tiny cog in the wheel. If I do something, am I credited? Absolutely. But that's only because that's the way Hashem runs the world. And only because Hashem wants it to be credit. And when Neil Armstrong said those words, he became the man in history. By the way, was he the man in history? But less than a moment after him, Buzz Aldrin came down that same ladder. And Buzz Aldrin walked on the very same moon for two and a half hours with Neil Armstrong. Buzz Aldrin is a forgotten name. What did Neil Armstrong do that Buzz Aldrin didn't? I don't know. He was the first one. It wasn't even Neil Armstrong's line. That great, brilliant line, a small step for a man, a giant leap for mankind, was scripted. It was written written for NASA originally long before the spaceship took off. Yet Neil Armstrong is credited for history. He's the man who walked on the moon. He's the man who conquered space. Why? Because that's the way of the world. When you're the right man in the right time, in the right place, that action is credited to you, and on one level it's correct. Hashem credits you for what you do right and what you do wrong. It's considered as if you did it all. It's all you and totally you. And while on one level we have to recognize that, on the other level we have to recognize that we human beings are but tiny, tiny, little, ineffective, little cogs in the wheel. And on one level what Moshe Rabbeinu was saying to the daughters of Yisro is you're thanking me, thank the Mitzri. Don't you see there's a huge chain of events here. There's so many steps that had to happen. I'm but a tiny little nothing. And that level alone is very eye-opening for us to understand Hashem's involvement in the world. But it's the next level that's even deeper. It's the mushal. <clears throat> when the Medrash brings the mushal and says, there was a man who was bit by a snake and he runs to the river. <clears throat> and he saves the boy and the boy says, thank you. And the man says, don't thank me, thank the snake. What was that man saying? What do you think I'm doing here? How did I end up here? It just so happens at the moment that you're drowning, I'm here. And you don't recognize something's happening. What Moshe Rabbeinu was saying to the daughters of Jesus was, Wake up and smell the coffee. This is unique. This is unusual. I'm not here every day. I'm not from this place. And I happen to fly in at the very moment when you're in desperate straits. Don't you get it? There's a world out there, <clears throat> Peter Pans on harnesses. There are cables and wires and a shim orchestrates every event on the planet. And when things happen that are unusual, we have to say, I get it. 
Hashem orchestrated this. Hashem arranged it. We have to write it down. We have to remember it. We have to focus on it. And we have to grow from it. And a person can live through nisim, miracles, and never see them. How many mornings do we say to Hashem, Thank you, Hashem, for yesterday's miracles. Miracles? What miracles? I'm a person done miracles for? I'm a regular Jew. A regular person. Hashem is going to do miracles for me? But those are the words that Chazal put into the Nusach of Shema Esrei because that's part of our belief system. It's part of reality. If you don't open your eyes, you don't see the cables, you don't see the harnesses, it looks like a regular world. I earn my living, I'm in charge of my health, I'm in charge of my success, everything is me or, or the other guy who harmed me. And we get so bent out of shape and we get so involved in the busyness of being alive in this world and we forget that it's all just a part of the script. And when you have a miracle happen to you, you have to step back and say, I get it. The guy just flies into the scene right at the right moment. I get it. Someone's orchestrating it. Someone's arranging it. Someone's bringing him there. And I want to close with one last step. <clears throat> in 2001, in Mea Shorim, a very interesting event happened. It was a morning, and a woman goes out to her merpeset, and she notices a fellow taking an attaché case and throwing it into the garbage. And the guy wasn't Jewish. And she says, oh my goodness, I know what happened. The guy stole a Jew's attaché case. In it is Thomas and Philin. He probably thought there were diamonds or whatever in it. He saw there wasn't, so he threw it out. Now this poor Jew doesn't have Thomas and Philin. Oh, this is terrible. She notices at the same point that her brother-in-law is right there in the street working on his car. She calls out to her brother-in-law and says, Moshe, go over to the dumpster over there, take out the attaché case. Moshe was very involved under the hood, and he should have said, all right, when, I, when I'm done, when I'm finished. For some strange reason, he didn't. He immediately said, okay, fine. He put down his tools, went over to the dumpster, opened the attaché case, and sees a cell phone connected to something. He immediately recognizes it at a bomb, as a bomb. He immediately <clears throat> looks at the right wire, <clears throat> finds the exact connection, disconnects it, and 60 seconds later, there's a phone call that rings to that cell phone, and a tragedy was averted. It was a bomb. And that cell phone would have rung 60 seconds later, would have destroyed who knows how many people's lives. But it just so happens to be, coincidentally, that Maishi was on the scene, disconnected the wire. When the cell phone rang, it wasn't attached to the explosives, and no one was harmed. When you read a story like that, you say, wow, it's a shkoch, it's amazing, wow, it's astonishing, wow, look, Hashem runs the world, Baruch Hashem. But here's the question. Moishi is a Haredi Jew. <clears throat> how did Moishi know that this was a bomb? How did he know how to dismantle it? Dismantling a bomb, if you take the wrong wire off, it explodes immediately. How did he have the wisdom and knowledge to A, instantly recognize it, B, know how to disconnect? What, what, what's going on? Well, it happens to be something else interesting happened about 10 years before that scene. Approximately 10 years earlier, there was an outcry in Meisharim because 10 Hasidisha families got notices that their boys were being inducted drafted into the army. And it was a huge cry and an outrage. There was religious exemptions and there was never an issue. And all of a sudden, 10 fellows are, are being drafted. It's outrageous. These families use all of the protection and nine out of those 10 fellows were actually let off and didn't go. 
But this Moshe, for some reason, they couldn't get him off, and he had to go to the army against his will. Interestingly enough, he spent six months in the army. What was he assigned to? Bomb diffusion. He spent six months studying explosives, studying how to diffuse them, so that when 10 years later he was at the dumpster, instantly <clears throat> all of his training came back to him. He immediately recognized the object, immediately knew which wire to dis- attach. And that, my friends, is a huge yisod. Do you know why? Because if we work on ourselves and we begin seeing Peter Pan flying in and flying out, we change our perspective. I get it. Hashem runs the world. <clears throat> Hashem is involved. Hashem is intimately involved in everything that happens. I get it. But I don't understand it. This doesn't make sense. <clears throat> this is bad. If Hashem is good, and Hashem does everything for the good, and Hashem is totally involved, then that means Hashem is doing this. And this is terrible. And this is the worst thing. So I have a complaint. I have a tie against Hashem. I'm angry at Hashem. Hashem, I recognize that you run the world. I see Peter Pan. I see the wires. I see the cables. And I see that you're doing things to harm me. And so many times we have complaints against Hashem because we're so myopic and we don't see beyond our noses. I'd imagine that fellow, I don't know him, but I can imagine a tremendous outcry. Hashem, me, nine other guys get off, and me alone, I have to serve, and who knows what exposures I'm going to have over there, and who knows what's going to be. And little does he understand that he won't know for a week or a month, and maybe not even for 10 years, and maybe never even until he leaves this earth. But the first step is recognizing that when Peter Pan shows up on the scene, Hashem has Put him here. There's a harness, there's wires. And the next step is to stop and say, okay, I get it. I don't know all the answers. Hashem knows far better than me what I need. <clears throat> Hashem knows far better than me what's for my best. And learning to see Hashem running the world. And then the next step, learning to trust in Hashem, knowing that Hashem knows better than me, is <clears throat> two of the steps that are necessary for a Jew to grow, to accomplish. May Hashem grant us the wisdom and understanding to put this into practice.